Well, in 1830, a German Protestant pastor, Johann Hinrich Wickern, was working on mission among an impoverished group in the city of Hamburg, Germany. As winter arrived each year, he noticed that, especially during the month of December, the children in his school, which was called the Rouse House, uh, would start peppering him every day with the same question. And you can probably imagine what that question was. Is it Christmas yet? Every day. Is it Christmas yet? In response to that question, he devised a system. Anybody that works with kids or has kids knows that a system can really help to avoid answering that same question over and over, right? Well, his system uh, was meant to encourage the children in their eagerness while not having to answer that question every single day. And so the thing that he came up with was, of course, candles. He fashioned a wreath of sorts from an old wheel off of a cart, and that wreath included 20 red candles and four white candles. Four white ones, one for each Sunday leading up to Christmas, and one red candle for each of the other days of the week. Each day, uh, he would light a candle, and each day, as the children saw more candles lit and saw that uh, fire rapidly approaching the final candle before Christmas, their anticipation and excitement grew. The idea of the Advent wreath caught on among other Protestant churches in uh, and throughout Germany, and it finally showed up in the United States in the 1920s. Over the years, uh, the wreath has evolved and been adapted for context, but the purpose remains the same, to serve as a marker and to build anticipation as we eagerly await our celebration of the arrival of Jesus. The first candle that we lit here on our Advent uh, wreath was uh, representative of hope as Pastor Dan preached on the gospel in hard places. And then last week we saw Jesus step down through this line of broken people in love. The candle was love as Emmanuel, God with us. And this week the third candle represents joy. This morning, we're going to continue on anticipating our celebration of the arrival of Jesus in our series called This is Love. We'll be opening up to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14, especially this morning in a message titled Love Revealed. And as we go through, we're going to ask two main questions. First, who is Jesus according to this text? And second, why does it matter? So, uh, if you'd open up your Bible to John chapter 1 this morning, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can open your phone and uh, find a Bible on there, or we have some extra paper copies at the back table. Uh, If you're not in the habit of bringing your own Bible with, I'd like to encourage you to start doing that, whether that's print or digital each week, but that allows you to open up God's Word and see for yourself if the things that I'm saying are true. You should always be doing that, following along and making sure that what your preacher says is true. So, if you have a Bible, a paper copy, and you don't know where John chapter 1 is, uh, it's about three quarters of the way through the whole book. Uh, If you come to the New Testament, it opens Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and then Acts and Romans follow that. So if you hit Acts or Romans, you've gone too far and you need to turn back to the left. So, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and then verse 14. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light 
of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Who is Jesus, according to John chapter 1? I see at least seven things that Jesus is in this passage. First, Jesus is the word, right? It opens, in the beginning was the word. Well, what is the word? According to verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Throughout the rest of the book of John and here at the beginning, uh, we learn that Jesus is obviously the word that John has in mind. But why does he choose the word word to describe Jesus? Well, last week, if you were here, if you saw that, we talked through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, and we saw that at every name drop, a story or two or ten were recalled, right? Saying the name David, for example, reminds uh, readers of David's kingship and of the promise of an heir to sit on that throne forever and of some deep sin issues that David had. The same thing happens here as John uses the word, word, to describe Jesus, Throughout the Old Testament, uh, or for original readers throughout their Bible, right, God's word does some key things. God expresses himself by his word in creation. Right? God speaks and things pop into existence. And we can learn all sorts of things about God by looking at creation. Right? The Bible tells us that all of creation declares the glory of God. God expresses himself, but he also reveals himself by his words, right? He tells his people what matters to him, how they should live, what glorifies him, what dishonors him, and on and on. When God speaks, he reveals himself. When we learn about what God values, we learn about who God is. Finally, when God speaks, his plan for salvation is pronounced, right? In the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God has had a plan to rescue his people from their sin. We, we begin to see it play out as he makes that covenant with Abraham and chooses the nation of Israel as his people. And then we see it doubled down on as he reiterates to David that an heir would come who would sit on his throne forever. God's plan for salvation is pronounced by his word. And so, for John to use the word word to describe Jesus' incarnation is very appropriate. When we see Jesus, John says, we see God. When we see Jesus, we see God. Second, Jesus was with God in the beginning. Numbers two and three kind of go together, so uh, two is short. The word that is, Jesus was with God in the beginning, verse 1 says. Jesus is eternal. Jesus has always existed just as God the Father has. Jesus is eternal. He was with God in the beginning. Not only was Jesus with God in the beginning, but Jesus was God in the beginning. Jesus was God, verse 1 says, in the beginning. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This is perhaps the primary point that John wants to make throughout his entire account of the life of Jesus in his book. Jesus is God. Believe in him. 
Jesus is God, believe in him. John says this over and over and over again throughout the book. He says this at the beginning in verse 1, and then he restates it at the end in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he says this. He says, these, that is the acts of Jesus, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is God. Believe in him. Jesus was with God in the beginning, and Jesus was God in the beginning, verse 1 says. Well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because Jesus, being God himself, was with God in the very beginning and at the moment of creation. He, like the Father, is and was all-knowing. He knew and knows everything that has ever happened and everything that will ever happen from eternity past to eternity future. He knew and knows it all. And he knew it at the moment of creation. Every good thing that would happen, every bad thing, every pain, every pleasure, every praise, every curse, he knew them all. And he still created. And he still came to earth. And he still lived a perfect, sinless life. And he still bore my sin and your sin on the cross. Pastor and author James Montgomery Boyce said it like this. He writes, In the beginning, in the eternal counsels of God, before there was a world or a lost race of men, Jesus foresaw all human history and knew that he was to redeem the race. Thus, in the fullness of time, in the days of Herod, he assumed a body so that he could offer up that body as the perfect sacrifice for man's sin. He was with God in the beginning. He is eternal. He knew what would happen if he created humanity. He knew we would reject him and spit on him and whip him and ultimately kill him. And he still did it. He still did it. God wasn't caught by surprise when sin entered the world and Jesus wasn't a backup plan. When God created, he knew exactly what would happen. When Jesus was there with him, creating, he knew exactly what would happen. And they did it anyway. They did it anyway. Love that deep for people is overwhelming, isn't it? Like the fact that we ever question God's love for us, and and I do, I question God's love for me all the time. We do that, right? We question God's love for us, but it's so far off base to do that that there's not even a word picture that does it justice. God knew He knew that we would reject him. Jesus knew that he would be murdered in this ruthless fashion and that he would hang on the cross bearing every sin that has ever been committed. He knew all of that. He knew it would all happen and he came and he did it anyway. Jesus, with the mind of God, knew in the beginning. He's eternal. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And he stepped down, taking on human flesh, and dwelled among us. That is love. Number four, all things were created through him. All things were created through him. First century readers, whether familiar with the Old Testament or not, reading this letter would have immediately been brought back to Genesis when they read this, right? Creation. Whenever you see the word creation in scripture, you should immediately think Genesis. Genesis 1, that's where creation happened. There's no mistaking what John is doing here. He's making his thesis statement again. Jesus is God. 
He's in the beginning with God. It says he was with God. He was God. All things were created now through him. It's interesting. If you read Genesis chapter 1, you don't see any mention of Jesus' name. You just see that God's spirit was hovering over the waters and then he speaks and things happen. But John and others like Paul in the book of Colossians tell us that Jesus was there and that all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. It says, apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Not one thing. It's kind of crazy to think about that. And I think sometimes we think about that only in the past tense, like Jesus made all of this stuff and he made the world. But creation still happens constantly, doesn't it? Our bodies are constantly making new cells. All kinds of creatures all over the planet are having offspring all the time. Right? And as the pinnacle of creation, even we as humans get to participate with God in creation as we have children. Did you know that 250 babies are born every minute around the world? That's a lot of babies, right? One baby every four seconds. Or sorry, that's wrong. Four babies every one second. It's more than that, right? So four babies, four babies. Four, like, it's crazy how much creation is happening even now. You have not been made apart from the loving and careful hand of Jesus Christ. He is involved in creation today. He was involved in making you. He knew you in eternity past. And he carefully and wonderfully knit you together. You matter. You matter to Jesus. Not only is he powerful beyond our wildest imaginations, right, in his ability to just make things by speaking, just as God does, but Jesus is intimately involved in the happenings on this planet. He cares for the things he creates, including and especially you. He cares for the things he creates. Nothing is out of his control. Christmas can be a really hard season for people, right? especially if you've lost a loved one recently or maybe not even so recently. It can be a painful reminder of someone's absence. If everyone around you is joyful and excited and cheerful with everything going on, but you're dealing with some depression or some seasonal affective disorder, or you're just kind of down in the dumps, that can be really amplified, right? As people around you are all happy and excited about the season, and it can feel like you've got nowhere to go with it because you don't want to be the Debbie Downer of your friends or in your family. A season isn't easy for everyone. And if that's you, if you're struggling, here's your reminder. Jesus knows. He knows. He created you. He took on flesh and he cares for you. He's intimately involved in this world and you can talk to him. He knew you would struggle. He knew you would hurt. He knew you would deal with difficult and twisted situations and thoughts. You can press into him in dark moments. Remember that you are in his grip. He's got you. From eternity past, at creation, and today, Jesus knew you, and he knows you, and he cares for you deeply and intimately. Number five. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Life comes from Jesus. Well, duh, Chris, we're at church. Of course we know life comes from from Jesus, right? But stop and think about this with me. Life comes 
from Jesus. In John chapter 10, we see this idea reiterated. Jesus says in John 10, 10, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, Jesus, have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. The context of that verse, Jesus is using the illustration of sheep and a shepherd to teach. Jesus, the good shepherd, gives life to his sheep. How does he do that? Well, by, according to John, laying down his life for his sheep. See, in Jesus, life is found, but apart from Jesus, only thieves who come to steal and kill and destroy exist. Apart from him, that's all there is. If you want life, it's only found in Jesus. Only Jesus gives life. Only Jesus. Not money, not sex, not wisdom, not success, not intelligence, not knowing lots of facts about God, not having cool stuff. None of that can give you life. In fact, when you ask those things to give you life, they will steal and kill and destroy. They can't give you life. They can only take your life. It's good to be wise, of course. It's good to know facts about God. It's good to enjoy sex within the confines of marriage. It's okay to own nice things. It's good to be smart and successful. But when you try to get life from those things, they'll kill you. They'll kill you. They can't give you life. They can only take it. Jesus... On the other hand, Jesus, if you put Jesus first, if you give him your life, if you confess him as Lord and cast your cares before him, he will grant you abundant life, abundant life. You'll be satisfied and fulfilled and joyful and you will experience life as it was intended by the only one who can give it. Number six, the light of Jesus shines in the darkness. The light of Jesus shines in the darkness. Verse 5 says that the light, which we just learned is the life found in Jesus, shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. The world is a dark place. It's not hard to see that as we look around. Sin is rampant. Evil seems to prosper. The author of Ecclesiastes experienced that very thing a few thousand years ago. And he wrote about it in Ecclesiastes 7. He says this, In my futile life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. In other words, all the time, bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people who don't deserve it. The world is a dark and twisted place, right? And as we look around, I think most of the time, the world doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. Ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, the whole world has been crumbling, right? But in that darkness, Jesus shines life. Jesus shines in that darkness. He's like a lighthouse on the coast at night. Treacherous waters and submerged stones threaten the safety of ships as they try to enter safe port. Left to their own, those ships would crash into the jagged cliffs and their cargo would be lost and their passengers and crew would drown. But with a lighthouse 
to reference, safe travel through treacherous waters can be had. Apart from Jesus, we are blindly walking through a dark world with no direction and no meaning and no hope of heaven. But the light and life of Jesus shine in that darkness, beckoning us to follow him, to follow his example, to trust in him, to guide and save us, and calling us to tell those around us of the salvation that awaits if they just look to the light. Wickedness prospers for now, and sin runs rampant for now. But one day, one day, those who have trusted in Jesus will go home to be with him in glory for all of eternity. And in that day, Jesus will right all the wrongs and bring justice. And that same day, that same day that Jesus calls the saints home to be with him in heaven, that day is a terrible day for those who have sought life from thieving things. They will find themselves on the outside looking in, wishing they had believed, wishing they had confessed Jesus as Lord. Life is only found in Jesus. Light is only found in Jesus. And John 1 says that light still shines today. The words in verse 5 are so interesting, I think. It says that the light shines, present tense, right now. The light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not, past tense, it did not overcome it. The light has already conquered the darkness. It doesn't always feel like that, but it's true nonetheless. The light has already conquered the darkness. John, of course, is writing his letter, uh, his book after the death of Jesus, after Jesus had hung on that cross and rose again on the third day, after Jesus had come and lived that perfect sinless life and hung there and then for three days laid buried. Darkness tried, right? Darkness tried. It gave it its best shot. It thought it had won. It thought for three days that it had thwarted the plan of God and defeated him. Not even close. Not even close. Jesus arose on the third day victorious over sin and death. And any attempt for darkness to overtake the light of Christ will ultimately always fail. He always has and always will reign victorious, king over all. And if you turn to him, if you turn to Jesus and place your trust in him and confess him as Lord of your life, you too can have life eternal, delivered from the clutches of death into the hand of God where nothing can separate you from his love in Christ. Finally, Jesus showed us God. Jesus showed us God. Let's look at verse 14 one more time. It says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, if you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. It says that he was with God and was God and he is God. He took on flesh and he showed us exactly what it would be like if God was a human. Jesus was fully man, right? We talk about that from time to time. And he showed us how to live a life of perfect obedience to the Father. 
but he was also fully God. And he showed us in his life exactly what God is life like. What Jesus did in his life on earth is exactly who God is. I think it's so easy for us to pit the Father and the Son against each other, right? We often think of God as the Father, and so we pit God and Jesus against one another, and we think of God, right, as this sort of grumpy, vengeful, powerful person who sits in heaven and demands obedience and punishes the disobedient, and he's just kind of watching out, right? We think of the Old Testament God who just was kind of vengeful and those sorts of things. We have this caricature in our minds of God. But then we think of the Son as maybe his more reasonable half, right? He, he came to earth and he was kind and gentle and caring and he actually loved people, right? He was willing to die for us. We shouldn't pit the Father and the Son against each other like that. Boyce, again, is helpful here. He says this, does Jesus Christ hate sin? Yes, so God has always hated sin also. Does Jesus Christ love the sinner? Yes, therefore God loves him also. Barclay, another commentator, says, what Jesus did was to open a window into time that we might see the eternal and unchanging love of God. In fact, God so hates sin and so loves the sinner that in eternity he planned the way in which he would redeem the race. We read the Old Testament and we find God saying, there must be an atonement for sin. We read the accounts of Christ's life and death and we find God saying, there is the atonement for sin. We come to our time and as the word of God is preached, we find God speaking to our hearts and saying, that was the atonement for sin. Believe it and be saved. God has always been like Jesus. Jesus took on flesh in what we call the incarnation and he showed us the love, the deep, deep love that God has for humanity. This is quite the list, right? Those seven things. And to be honest, we've really just begun to scratch the surface of all the riches of John chapter one. There's so much there. There's so much that we can sit on and learn and know about who Jesus is, right? But why does it all matter? Why does it matter? What's John's takeaway here? Well, two things. First, when we see the heart of Christ, we see the heart of God. And therefore, we can know who God is. We can know who God is. Remember John's thesis? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. If you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus. And you can do that in three really key ways. First, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Spending, spend time getting to know God in the way that he chose to reveal himself to us now that Jesus is no longer here. We have God's word. These words are his very words. They're alive and active and they change us and they meet us and they speak to us. Get to know God by spending time in his word. Second, spend time with God in prayer. Maybe prayer is not a big thing for you and whether you're a new believer or you've been a believer a long time, maybe prayer is just hard and you're not really sure what to do or how to talk to God. The good news is you can just talk to him like, like you would talk to anyone, even more raw and more real than you can talk to anyone else. Just open your heart up to God and have a conversation. And sometimes you won't even know what to say and that's okay. You can just sit in prayer in God's presence and let your heart speak. The Spirit is 
uh, intercessing on your behalf. It's okay to sit in silence before God and just be in his presence. Spend time in prayer. And finally, spend time with God's people. It's so important. It's such an important way that the Bible tells us to learn about who God is by spending time with God's people, gathered here on Sundays and gathered again throughout the week as you're able to do that with other believers. Spend time reading God's word, spend time in prayer, and spend time gathered with his people. Get to know Jesus and get to know God. Finally, why does it matter? Number two, if he is who the scriptures say, encountering him demands a response. If Jesus is who the scriptures say he is, encountering him demands a response. Let's look at John chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. It says this, He, that is Jesus, was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Encountering him demands a response, and you have two options. You can reject him, or you can receive him. You can reject him, or you can receive him. Option number one, verse 11, is to reject him. You can go on living as you are and reject the message of the good news of Jesus Christ and continue to try and milk the fleeting pleasures of this life for all they're worth and hope that you can find life in them. But you won't. You can keep trying to get life from things in this world, but you won't find life there. They can't give you life. And I think, if you're honest with yourself, you already know those things that you're trying to get life from are failing. They're not satisfying you. Nothing satisfies you fully apart from Jesus, right? You, you buy that thing that you needed to have. You just needed it. You finally bought it. Little time passes and what was fulfilling and great is not anymore. And it's on to the next thing that you need to have in your life. You land your dream job, right? And you finally, I'm fulfilled in my work and in my job. It's great for a couple months, maybe even a couple years, but before long you start to notice the people and the problems and all the things going around on, in the office that you don't like and you're not quite as happy as you thought you'd be. Or this one's great, right? You finally get married and you think everything's going to be amazing. I have a, I have a spouse now and everything's going to be awesome forever. I'm never going to fight. It's going to be great. And then it's not. It's not everything that you hoped it would be. Rejecting Jesus means trying to get life from thieves, from things that can only lie and steal and destroy. And it won't work. It won't work. But you do have the option to try. Option number two, and I think this is a much better option. In verse 12 it says, you can receive him. You can receive Jesus as Lord. And, and when you do, when you confess Jesus as Lord, what does it say? It says that he gives you the right to be called a child of God. A child of God. And the amazing thing is it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been or where you came from. 
right? Verse 13, it's, it's not to those who were, who were born of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, right? It doesn't matter if you have the right lineage or if you tried really hard or if you were born into a Christian home, right? Who does he give the right to be children of God? It's simply those who are born of God, those who cry out to Jesus in their brokenness and in their empty search for satisfaction in lesser things and confess that they've sinned against God and need someone to rescue them. Confess Jesus as Lord and follow him. And in that moment, your life is changed forever. You're adopted as a son or daughter of God. So you've got these two options this morning, right? If you're listening to this, you no longer have the excuse that you've never heard about Jesus. You have. You've heard about him. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to reject him? Keep trying to give, to get life from things that can only give death? Or, better option, are you going to receive the gift that God offers through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh, who dwelt among us, who showed us the glory of God and went to a cross on your behalf that you might have life and life abundant. As we continue to walk out this Advent season anticipating our celebration of the arrival of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage every one of you listening to this to cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. He loves you and he cares for you. Jesus is God. Believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word and for the beginning of John and for the whole book that tells us who Jesus is and what he's done. We thank you that you saw fit in due time in the days of Herod to send Jesus to take on human flesh and live the life that we couldn't, to die the death that we deserved and to bear our sin on that cross. Father, it's difficult for us to comprehend that kind of love. I pray that as we struggle through this season, as we look at the world around us and deal with things going on in our own hearts, that you would remind us of the hope of the gospel, remind us that you've saved us out of sin and into marvelous light. We're so grateful that you decided in eternity past to do that. We love you. We thank you for our time in the word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.